Thanks for listening to the Journey Podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast engages you and encourages you to become more like Him. It is so good to be here today to share the Good Friday message with you. For those of you that don't know me, I am Keith Walton. I'm the campus pastor at our Sherwood campus. If you're watching online, we say welcome. If you're watching in the atrium, we say welcome. And I'm going to be brutally honest. I generally tell a story every time I share a message. That ain't happening today. I'm about to give it to you straight. No chaser. A little bit about me. Um, I love football. I mean, I'm very passionate about the game of football. How can you not be living in the South? And as a matter of fact, I'm more than just a novice person, just a fan. I've actually coached the game. I've coached it at the middle school level, the JV level, and the varsity level. And when you hear this term, Good Friday, for a high school football coach, it means something. It, it means something to all of us, but it's a little bit different. Every Friday in the fall, for a football coach is a doggone Good Friday. And I'm going to say dog, D-A-W-G. So it's a doggone good day. And there's something about Friday night. There's something about being under the lights. It's something about when the weather changes and it goes from hot to cool and that wind blows through and they just cut the grass and you smell the scent of freshly cut grass. There's something about Friday night under the lights. I love the pageantry about Friday nights. I love the strategies where uh, you see a coach across the field from you and you're trying to strategize and y'all like playing a chess match. I love practice that has to do with the fall. I love practice that has to do with football. Friday night under the lights is special. As a matter of fact, I can remember my teams will be on the field warming up right before the game starts. And there's a point in time in the game when they will, we will run up our heel and we'll go back into the locker room. Last minute adjustments the position coaches would make. And then I would step in and I would give this speech to fire everybody up. And then we have to do this thing. We have to wait and wait. And in that moment while we're waiting in that locker room, hearts are beating fast. Some people say they got butterflies. I I remember certain players coming up to me and say, coach, I got dinosaurs flying around in my stomach. Because in this moment of anticipation, they're full of excitement. Matter of fact, man, if you're, if you're a quarterback, you're trying to go through all those plays that you got on, got in your mind and you don't want to make a mistake. And there's this pressure on you, this anticipation of how you're going to execute the game plan. If you're a freshman and you're not going to play a whole lot, you're just excited to run out on the field. There's an anticipation in your heart about running out on the field with your team. Anticipate. Anticipation. As a matter of fact, now that I've shifted roles and, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm pastoring and I can remember uh, doing my first wedding. This same anticipation. When I was with the groom and the groomsmen in this back room, they're anticipating this wedding ceremony. It's the same butterflies in the stomach and they know what's coming. They know what's coming and they're still nervous. This, this excitement. Oh, I can remember when my daughter was born and they checked us into the hospital. This same anticipation, because I thought they were going to check us in the hospital and the baby's going to come. 
That ain't what happened. There was this waiting game that we had to do and this anticipation that just drove me mad. Every time the nurse came in the room, I, I jumped up to my feet and said, this is it. Oh, no, 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 Keith, you know, we got we to gotta wait a little while longer. I'm like, man, why does this take so long? Anticipation. And there was an excitement. There was a wonder. There was an awe. There was this little bit of fear because you really don't know what's going to happen. And if you were bold enough to be one of those fathers or mothers that you don't know the gender of your child until it was born, this is another level of excitement. It's when your baby comes and they say, it's a boy or it's a girl. Your eyes fill with tears and you begin to cry. It's excitement of anticipation. There's another type of anticipation, though. When you go to the doctor's office and they come into the room and they say, you know, we've got to send, we've done a biopsy, we've got to send it off. We'll call you in a couple of days, three or four, to let you know the results, this biopsy. That anticipation ain't a whole lot of fun. That anticipation is stressful. That anticipation, you don't have condors in your stomach. You're literally sick to your stomach because your mind is racing with all these plans. Well, what if they come back and the biopsy is positive? Then we got to do this, this, and this. And I got to prepare myself and my family. But what if they come back and the biopsy is negative? Okay, that's true. And your mind is split down the middle and you're playing this tug of war with yourself. So we're going to look. At when, at when our Heavenly Father became in his most human state of anticipating what's to come. We're going to start in Matthew 26, verse 36 through 39. And we're going to pick this story up with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In this, in this scene that we have here, you see Jesus. We've already had the Last Supper. We've washed the disciples' feet. We've talked to the disciples about someone will betray me. He looked at Peter and said, you will deny me. We've done all of that. He's, an, he's anticipating what's to come. He's God. So he's all-knowing. He's all-knowing, so he knows exactly what's coming down the line. And in this moment, his humanity comes through as he says, um, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. And in another verse, it says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak again. For the second time, he went away and prayed. Jesus, in his humanity, he's stressed. And it is a weight on his shoulders that even seems unbearable. So he prays the first time, comes back to his friends and family and talks to them, goes away, prays a second time. It's a good lesson in this. And he said, and again, he's, he came around and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. So what's happening right now, he's prayed one time, he's prayed two times, he's prayed three times, he goes back to them. And what he spoke about at the Last Supper is about to happen. And as he's praying to God for God to take this cup from his mouth, he's anticipating what's getting ready to come down the pipe. And it ain't good. No man. No man. Matter of fact, God's word goes into details about him praying so hard and his stress level being so hard that he begins to sweat blood. Now, all of us in here will say with our mouths how stressed we are. But it will be a very few group of people in here, if any at all, that will say you've been so stressed that you've stressed blood. That's a whole different type of stress. That's a whole different type of frustration. And in Matthew 26, 47 through 50, the thing that begins to tip the domino begins to happen. And he says, while he was speaking, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, and this, this is amazing to me. Jesus said to him, friend. He didn't call him enemy. He didn't cuss him out. He didn't throw them hands. That's not what he did. He called him friend. Now, I've never been betrayed. I don't, I've never been betrayed. But in this sense right here, Jesus, God, is betrayed by man and has the divine ability to call him friend. To me, in that moment, Jesus already forgave him. Matter of fact, Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. They took him away. They began to go through the, through the legal ramifications on what to do with him. This person over here doesn't want him. This person over here doesn't want him. Nobody really wants to kill him. And he ends up with Pilate. He ends up with Pilate. The governor again said to him in verse 20, in chapter 27, verse 21 through 23, the governor again said to them, which of the two 
do you want me to release for you? So on Passover, there was a tradition that they would release one of the prisoners. And so you've got Barabbas on one side and you've got Jesus on one side. And Pilate doesn't want to necessarily kill Jesus. So he turns it over to the people. And he says, which would you have me release? And the people screamed out, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, the crowd, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But then they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Man, when I was growing up as a kid and I would hear this story, I didn't like Pilate. Pilate was the enemy. But in God's word right there, it wasn't Pilate. It was the people. Now, y'all don't, y'all don't understand me. Because five days earlier, these same group of people were shouting his name, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're celebrating him. They're gassing him up. They're applauding. They're bowing. He's the king. This same group of people, the crowd, the crowd. And as Pilate stands before them, Barabbas on his left and Jesus on his right, what shall I do? And they shout, free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. How fickle are we as a people? And if this is happening to Christ, the expectation should be when you get your feelings hurt, you shouldn't be surprised. We're humans born in sin. So in this moment, Jesus is denied. In this moment, he's denied freedom. Not by Pilate, but by the crowd. He's been betrayed. He's been denied. All of this, he's anticipated. All of this, when the people whom he's healed are screaming his name for him to be crucified and he's standing before them, Sturdy in silence. He's not hollering back at them. The people, some of them that he's healed. Crucify him. Crucify him. On this good Friday that my heavenly father anticipated, he was betrayed. He was denied. Verse 27, I mean, chapter 27, verse 27 through 31 says, Pilate decides, Jesus The people have spoken. The court of public opinion. It's time for you to go. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And put a reed in his his right hand. And kneeling before him, they began to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him in his head. And when they had mocked him, and they had stripped him of his robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. John 19, 1-3 gives a little bit different insight. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown and pressed it on his head. And they put put him in an array of purple. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. 
So I'm not going to gloss over this. So what they did to my heavenly father, when, when the crowd turned on him and said, crucify him, crucify him, they took him into the governor's palace and there was this, this cement or rock that they had chiseled out and they, they bound my savior's hands around it, exposing his back. And when they say they whipped him, they took that cat of nine tails, that, that wooden beam with those straps uh, attached to it. And at the end of the straps, they had charred glass or metal. And when they began to hit him, they would hit him so hard that it would dig into his back and they would rip his skin off. Why he can't defend himself, he can't put his hands back there. And they did it again and again and again. And they mocked him, mocking him. You're the king, get up. You're the king, get up. Save yourself. And again, he take another beating. And one of the things that I struggle with is while he's there taking that beating, he's anticipating what's to come. This ain't even it. And they beat him, and they beat him, and they beat him. And I'm like, man, get up. End it all. None of us deserve to be here. And they beat him, and they beat him. God's word says his entire body was beaten and bruised. His entire body, the neck around my face, around my rib cage. The cat of nine tails would catch him on the side and rip his front. It rips his back. Another version would say he was laid open like a fish to the point he was beating so much where you could see bone and organ. This is my savior. And then they untie him. Oh, we're going to parade him out in the street. His feet have been beaten. They're bloody. And then they have the audacity in Roman, in the Roman culture at that time. And when you, when we're going to crucify, when they were going to crucify you, you had to carry your cross. So they throw the cross on his back. Jesus, when they came to get him out of Garden of Gethsemane, it was between two or three a.m. You stood before a crowd and was judged. You've been beaten. You're exhausted. Nowhere does it say that up until this point, has he eaten, has he drank? And now he's carrying this cross. And as he carries the cross in the street and the, the, the crowd begins to swim, the same crowd that five days earlier was screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, and calling him king, was the same crowd that's in the street chanting and mocking him to be crucified. And when I look, in my imagination, as I read this and I look out and I'm watching Jesus walk by himself, I'm watching love in the flesh walk alone. Where was the multitude that was fed? Where was the paralyzed man that was led through the roof? Where was the woman with the issue of blood? Where were the people that were blind that were made to see? Where are they? Because the only people that showed up was hate, spite, and jealousy. Oh, no, no, that's not, that's not really true. His mama was there. And for those of you that are parents, can you imagine 
standing there watching your child carry this cross until his legs give way and he falls flat on his face in anticipation. And this just ain't it. All that has been done to him in anticipation. And this ain't it. I, in my mind's eye, I see Jesus collapse on the ground and he looks and he sees his mom and they make eye contact. That feeling as a mother, because you're helpless. They let a criminal go. They let a criminal go. And they're killing my son. He carries his cross. We get to Calvary. And when we get to Calvary, they, they stand the cross up with my Savior on it. Nails in his hands. Nails in his feet. His body bruised, his body beaten, his body bloody as he walked alone. As love now is, is bound to that cross. I'm like, Jesus, get out. End it all. That divine love keeps him on that cross. When I think about Jesus being paraded through the crowd, there's this old hymn that says, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. I would like to say that if I was there, I would not have been like the crowd. When I think about this, I'm here now, and there are times I'm like the crowd where I have betrayed him, where I have mocked him. Where I've denied him, denying him. Deny him. God's word says, trust in the Lord with all, nine, with all thine heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Peter didn't do that. Peter didn't acknowledge him. How many times in your life have you been Peter? Oh, no, that's not what I do. Oh, no, no. When they say the word God and they put this expletive behind it and you don't correct them, they're laughing because it was a joke and you laugh right along with them. Did you acknowledge him in that moment? The answer is no. Peter. Peter. Have we mocked him? Have we mocked him? Have we made fun of him? Have we not taken his word seriously? When the high-ranking official asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In that second part, we don't do it for real. Mocking him. Denying him. Betraying him. After all he's done for us, 
I mentioned football at the beginning of this. My first 10 or 15 years after every game, win or lose, good or bad, we came together in the middle of the field and we sang this song. And he says, after all, he's done for me. After all, he's done for me. How can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely? After all, he's done for me. My Savior on that cross, he has anticipated this moment in Matthew 27, 45 through 46 says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and they filled it with sour wine and they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It is finished. That was what he anticipated. And when he said that, he had Keith on his mind. He had Paul on his mind. He had Peter on his mind. He had Sarah on his mind because he had to do this for us to live a life of eternity. He began, became the lamb that was sacrificed. This is what, this is what Good Friday is all about. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to in your presence, to be in your presence, to offer us a different perspective on this day. And again, I say, with all that you endured, with all the suffering that you endured, my perspective is this. After all, he's done for me. After all, you've done for me. How can I do less than give you my best and live for you completely? After all, you've done for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or would like to talk with someone about taking your next step, email us at nextsteps at journeycommunity.net.